This is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories about American business, the ideas, the workers, and every now and then, the bosses. And it takes a very special skill set to build something from the ground up or to run organizations day to day. And what does it take to run a multi-billion dollar enterprise? Joining us to talk about what he calls super bosses is Professor Sidney Finkelstein of Dartmouth College. Super Bosses is the latest of his 20 books, and he wrote it after spending a decade researching how leaders manage the flow of talent. And by the way, he's a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College. And Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be on with you. Thank you. Let's start with the word super boss. Uh, give us some examples uh, and tell us what it actually means to you. So uh, there's no such word in the dictionary. I, I kind of made it up, and I made it up because there's these unusual people that have a tremendous track record in generating and regenerating talent, really on a continuous basis, kind of a, almost like the holy grail of business when you, when you think about it. So these are leaders that, in a sense, create other leaders, that help other people get better, that see the potential in others before they see it themselves. And that's what, that's what this idea around super bosses means. Great. And, and who are some of the people that you think might fit into this category? And for folks who don't know their names as you rattle off the names, maybe give the listeners an idea of who those people are and what they helped create. Absolutely. I, I, suspect, uh, I suspect your listeners will know some of these names very well because Ralph Lauren is one of them, legendary uh, fashion guru who built a multi-billion dollar uh, business. Uh, George Lucas uh, from Star Wars fame, and and uh, and he's especially a super boss because of his work in uh, in special effects and all the different people that he helped uh, he helped develop that have become um, they become stars. Jay Shiat, who uh, was the founder of a of an advertising agency called Shiat Day, that became famous among other things for the 1984 Apple ad during the Super Bowl. Um, Miles Davis, the legendary jazz uh, genius. Uh, who uh, redefined the world of jazz and had so many protégés that went on to uh, to tremendous success. Larry Ellison from Oracle, founder of Oracle, now the chairman, longtime CEO. Many of his uh, uh, right-hand uh, men and women uh, became uh, big-time entrepreneurs and successes. Uh, people like Mark Benioff, for example, from Salesforce. Um, uh, how about Alice Waters in the in the foodie business? She is the uh, chef and founder of a restaurant called Panisse in Oakland, one of the most famous restaurants in America. And she is the reason why when you go to, a re- you go to so many restaurants today and you look at the menu and you see the, the listing of the farm that the product or the ingredient came from, it's, it, she's the one who invented, really, farm-to-table local sourcing of food in America. And that has now, of course, become standard practice. So that's a handful of names for you. There, there are some others as well, but they're, they're pretty famous. And I think it proves that it, they come from all walks of life, and they don't necessarily have to run a business. I mean, certainly no one would consider Miles Davis a businessman. But my, my goodness, the number of people he influenced who then went on to influence other people is legion. And by the way, I have a friend who worked at Ralph Lauren and is now a pretty big designer herself. And not, not, not to the stage of Ralph Lauren, but she had told me once and listed the number of names that started at the House of Lauren and now have their own designer shops. And, Professor, I was just stunned. No, oh, it's just, uh, it's amazing. You know, Vera Wang, uh, Tori Birch, uh, Joseph Abu, John Varvotos, uh, the guy that runs uh, Michael Kors' business, 
we, we, we started looking into this, and we just generated this long, long list of, uh, of names, and it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And Miles Davis, you mentioned, think about some of the people that were in his band and that he influenced over the years that have become the absolute superstars of jazz. Uh, John Coltrane, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, Bill Evans, Wayne Shorter, a, a long, long list, and all those people over time became highly influential themselves. And so I guess the, the question becomes, how do these super bosses find talent? And I guess there's a question inside this question, because sometimes I think that the talent finds the super boss. Mm, great, uh, great, great insight. When you, when you begin to get a track record of, um, of spawning all these uh, successful people, um, the, the high aspiration folks out there, the people that really want to make it, they pay attention to that. They notice that. And, and, and then they start knocking on your, uh, knocking on your door and trying to get a job. This happened with George Lucas, by the way, uh, just, uh, almost every, every day when I interviewed a bunch of the people that worked with him, they would, uh, they would talk about how, you know, he was in Skywalker, uh, Ranch. Um, up there in, I think, Marin County outside San Francisco. And uh, almost every, uh, every second day, some kid who just graduated from college somewhere would come knocking on the door asking for a job. And these were kids sometimes that had physics degrees, math degrees. They weren't necessarily, you know, uh, people just want to make movies. And, and one of the geniuses of, uh, of what he did with Star Wars and, and what, what Lucas did is he recognized that to accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish, he actually needed to create a whole bunch of other businesses that are really, today we would call them high-tech businesses, digital businesses that never existed before. And so the word got out that if you had a Ph.D., uh, or even if you didn't, but if you had a Ph.D. in one of the sciences and you wanted to do something a little bit different, uh, go find uh, Mr. Lucas because there's an opportunity there. Well, when we come back, we're going to dig in to more of Super Bosses, how exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. And we're talking to Professor Sidney Finkelstein, Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College. And just as an aside, my dad had always taught me to find these kinds of folks. When I was a young high school athlete, my dad said, you want to get really good, you got to go over to Bobby Knight summer camps. And he's the legendary coach at Indiana. And when I got there, I found coaches who had coached for Knight, including a player who had played for Knight named Mike Krzyzewski. And when you went down the food chain of Bobby Knight and the NCAA, it was an all-star list you couldn't believe. And I became an L-State player. And then secondary brush with this kind of uh, super boss was my brush with a man named William F. Buckley. When I was in college, he took me under his wing. He also took Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram under his wing. And he trained up the next group of conservative talkers and thinkers. And this happens with politics. This happens in every walk of life. It's a fascinating subject. And when we come back, more with Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. This is Our American Stories. back and talking to professor of strategy and leadership at dartmouth college professor sydney finkelstein author of a fantastic new book super bosses how exceptional leaders 
master the flow of talent. And, Professor, you heard me just talk about Bobby Knight and and whatever people think about his style. I loved his style. People self-selected and went to play for him. And, my goodness, when I got there, Larry Bird was there. Isaiah Thomas was there. You know, coach after coach after coach who were D1 coaches, including Mike Krzyzewski, was there. Uh, talk about the, the area of sports, because you do mention Bill Walsh. I think you could probably put Vince Lombardi down and even Bill Parcells down. Well, well said. You know, um, Bill Walsh was one of the uh, major uh, super bosses that I uh, that I profiled and, um, and 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 wrote about in the book. And and the reason is uh, we we actually looked at this in a, in a kind of quantitative way. Believe it or not, what we did is we looked at all the Super Bowl uh, winning and losing head coaches. So the two top head coaches in the NFL every year, and we did a genealogical study of them which is to say not their parents, but who they work for. And, uh, and then we start counting and creating these trees of talent. And when you do that, you discover that Bill Walsh was uh, sitting at the top of the most influential tree of talent in the NFL by, by far. Uh, something like 25 of his protégés have uh, gone on to success, and, and between him and some of those protégés, they've been in the Super Bowl more than anyone, anyone else. It's funny you mentioned Bill Parcells. He was number two. And uh, and he had that type of uh, that type of influence as well, uh, and I think and you know where else in sports you see it? I think you see it in with the San Antonio Spurs, and um, uh, and and you see their management team and a bunch of people that worked work there become head coaches and general managers in other parts of the uh, of the NBA. So sports lends itself uh, to this, but you know we also mentioned Miles Davis. So jazz lends itself to this. It's really rather uh, remarkable, and it speaks to. And this is something I think, you know, people, people re- really resonate with. It speaks to legacy. You know, what's your impact? And whatever it is, your chosen profession and whatever you do in your life. And, yeah, we all want to be successful. We want to have this. We want to have that. But at the end of the day, if you can look back and say, I helped these other people accomplish more than they probably could have on their own, that's, that's a pretty powerful thing. And, and that's what super bosses bring. There's no doubt. And once they've hired what they think is top-tier talent, how do super bosses motivate, inspire, and mm-hmm. get the best out of their people every day? That's a question. Yeah, they, well, there's a, there's a lot I could say about that, but in a nutshell, they do push you hard. You know, you said earlier about Bobby Knight, he's not everybody's cup of tea. Well, this is true for every super boss. You've got to be prepared to work really, really hard. They raise the bar, high expectations, and if you're willing and able to step through the door that's been open for you, it's a tremendous opportunity. But if you're not and you can't keep up, they're not going to spend any time on you. So it's very much of a meritocracy when you think about it that way. Now, inspiration is a big point as well. I've, I've worked with a lot of management teams over the years, and there are plenty of hard-driving managers, hard-driving leaders, push their people hard. But adding the, the inspiration part, which is to say to help other people believe that they're really the special ones, that they, that they can accomplish anything. I mean, Ralph Lauren used to say to people on his team, we are the ones that set the standard. We don't follow anyone else. They will follow us. And he believed it. I mean, you have to really be authentic about a thing like that. And, and, and so he fires up people. He energizes people. And, and, they, and they start to believe, you know, I've been selected by a Bill Walsh, by a Jay Shiat, by uh, Ralph Lauren, uh, that doesn't just happen by, by magic, by accident. And now I have to live up to that. I have to live, live up to that potential. So there's a big, it's a big part of, of inspiration, I think. That is how they help other people get better. And if I could add one other thing that I found to be much less common, and I think it's, I think it's a mistake, uh, and super bosses do this all the time, that is that they treat each individual employee or team member 
as an individual. They figure out what makes each person tick. They figure out how to motivate that person, how to energize that person. They even think about what the right career path should be, what's the next step, what's the next responsibility. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I think that in, in many areas of, of leadership, we have a lot of managers, a lot of leaders that, that, that are told, you know, you're a, you're a directive leader, or you're a relationship-oriented leader, or whatever. We put these labels on, yep. on people. And then as a result, you say, well, okay, everyone's got to accommodate me because it's who I am. But in fact, the best leaders, they're true to themselves, but they know that to get the, met, the most out of people, to, and to create these opportunities for people, they have to customize how they interact with those folks. And that's what they do. No doubt. And that, that inspiration part, you know, when I, when I was reading Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, my goodness, a real difficult guy to work with. But mm. you knew you were making history with this man. And so the inspiration came not necessarily by what he said to you, but what the team there at Apple was going to do to the world. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And, I, and I'll say from a lot of the interviews of protégés of superbosses that I did, the, the, some version of, of this old metaphor about the train leaving the station came up, and these are people who didn't even know each other. They would talk, they, they would say something like, you know, my uh, super boss, you know, Ralph Lauren or Bill, Bill Sanders in the real estate business, whoever it is, they would describe what their vision is, what they wanted to do, what they wanted to accomplish. And you knew right then and there that if you didn't hop on that train as it was leaving the station, you could regret it for the rest of your life. Imagine what, what that must have felt like. And they jumped at that opportunity. And so, you know, creativity and innovation and risk-taking, I think, is part of the story as well. Yeah, then the risk-taking, if you're taking it together, it doesn't feel like as much of a risk. Uh, no. Going at it by yourself, scary. Going at it with a band of merry warriors, a band of brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and I sometimes think that's, it almost becomes a military feeling in these senses. Talk about some of the applications in the military world. I've talked regularly with the commandant at West Point uh, throughout my lifetime, and I am amazed and, and shocked that people haven't written more and more widely about the remarkable uh, things they're doing over there at West Point. And if you follow that leadership tree through American history, it's not just the military battlefield. It's everywhere, Professor Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. The, 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 in fact, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because that's one of the big research projects I'm working on right now to try to understand how the military keeps producing world-class talent time and time again. And it's a complicated story because the truth is, and this is true for any part of public service or government, there is a seniority aspect in here. Uh, you don't automatically just get promoted two or three levels up uh, as, you know, Ralph Lauren might, might see some unbelievable potential in someone, and he might do that. But in a lot of other sectors of, of the economy and big parts of, big parts of what, what the country and, and the world is really all about, uh, there is a seniority element, and, I, and, and that could hold you back. But yet, despite that, when you look at the military, you see this, this, this development of, of so much talent. And part of it is... It's not an accident. You know, you know, West Point has a big leadership academy. I've spoken at, uh, at, the, at the Army War College about some of this as well. They invest a lot of time and a lot of energy in thinking about leadership, not just in a military sense, but in every aspect, in, in every walk of life, and then applying it to the military. So they take this really, really seriously, and I think the results show. No doubt. And, you know, we had done an hour on John Wooden on the day of his birth. And we found some audio where John Wooden is sitting around 11 of his players, and it's Bill Walton, and it's uh, Sidney Wilkes, and it's, it's, it's like just Gail Goodrich, some of the great NCAA and professional athletes of all time. And Bill Walton at a certain point goes, Coach, 
I always felt, felt like you had a double standard. You treated me tougher than you treated old Goodrich. Why was that? And he said, son, I didn't have two standards. I had 12. Always I had 12. And talk about that, because he always had 12 players, and he had high standards for all of them. But he mm-hmm. treated them each. What he, I think he was saying is, I'm going to treat you each as individuals. Yeah, it's really a, it's a, such a fantastic gift you're, doing to, you're giving to the people on your team because they just have a, a, an entirely different, uh, different opportunity. You know, the, 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 the way I think about it is, think about the world of, of marketing and sales today. Uh, or go, go on Google and type in a search term. And before you're finished typing it in, it, it completes it for you, of course, right? And then there's an ad sitting there about what you just typed in. And it's a little bit spooky how customized they are. And then compare it to how the, the field or the, uh, or, or the world of management and leadership operates, which is, you know, gigantic. It's everywhere. Every organization, every company, every entrepreneur has got to be a manager, has got to be a leader. And think about how it, it is so uncustomized. Um, and, and this one-size-fits-all. And, and the question I, I like to ask senior leaders when we talk about these topics is, you know, what, what would happen if you started to treat your employees the same way you treat your customers? What do you think might, might happen? And, and uh, it's a, it's a, it requires a bit of a shift in your brain to think about it that way, but as soon as you do that, you realize, and your John Wooden example is a great, is a great, uh, is a great example of that. By the way, Bill Walsh was legendary for, uh, for doing that. George Seifert, who succeeded him and actually won a Super Bowl after him, uh, said, you know, he pushed me so hard. We, were, we won. We would win big in the playoffs. And he would pick out every little detail. And he said, and, and, and it, was, it was really tough. And, and George Seifert would say, you know, afterwards, when I became a head coach, I realized what he was doing. He knew that I could be his successor. He knew that I could do it. And he wanted to make sure that I was as ready as possible. And that's why he did it the way he did. And we're talking to Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College, Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, and he's a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College, where some dear friends of mine have graduated, and there's no finer place in the country to study. If you want to endure a few cold winters, um, it's just terrific, and it's a beautiful place to be. Professor Finkelstein, thanks again for joining us. Great to be on. Thank you. You bet. I wanted to uh, dig into now this article in the Wall Street Journal that you wrote, and it was entitled, Why the Best Leaders Want Their Superstar Employees to Leave. Talk about that aspect of being a super boss. It is easily the most uh, radical uh, part of the, uh, of the equation, and that is, uh, and it really goes counter to how a lot of people think about, uh, think about leadership, think about business, but 
if you do a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you find great talent, you push them hard, you raise the bar, high expectations, you inspire, inspire them, you, 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 you tie it all together with a vision, you unleash their creativity uh, and their innovation, and you, you customize how you work with them, all these things, what do you end up with? You're going to end up with team members that are going to be unbelievably capable, and some of them are going to want your job or maybe even your boss's job. And so you try to accommodate by giving them bigger opportunities and bigger. But some of these people will have, will, will have seen what's in front of them, will have seen what their, you know, use the sports analogy, will, their ceiling would have gone up uh, in a way that they probably hadn't anticipated when their careers. And as a result, they're, they're going to want something big. And some of them are going to say, I need, to, I need to leave. I need to find my own place. I need to make my own mark. And the question then is, for you as the, as the leader, as the boss, uh, well, what are you going to do about that? And, and the, the answer, uh, an answer that says, hey, you know, why would I want to lose these best people? That doesn't make any sense, misses the point. It's not that you have a choice in the matter. It, that no one could force the people that work for them to work for them. Yeah. They, have, they are free to do whatever it is they want to do. And so as soon as you realize you're going to miss, you're going to lose some people, the question then is, how can I be as strategic as possible about that? And by that, I mean, how can I look for opportunities to continue to do business with this person? How can I continue to get a return on my investment after working with this person for five years, 10 years, or 15 years, or whatever it happens to be? So a couple of examples. Uh, Bill Frist is the founder of Hospital Corporation of America. Um, actually, Tommy Frist. Bill is the senator, a former senator from Tennessee, his brother. Uh, Tommy Frist. Is, uh, is a longtime CEO at HCA, and he, he was a true super boss. He had tremendous talent in, in, in the executive suite, and some of those people were going to leave. And so what did he do? He created spin-off businesses for them, a surgical care unit, a mental health clinic, something in their general field. He would create that business. He would provide equity into that business, and he would create that for one of his top lieutenants to become CEO in that business. And what happens? That person gets to run their own show, which is what they were going to do anyways. They were going to leave. But you now have some equity in that business. You have some partnership in that business, so you can continue to, to benefit. Or you know, take a, take a common cultural uh, example. Uh, Saturday Night Live and Lorne Michaels, the longtime executive producer, he knew he was going to lose some great talent, people like uh, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, uh, Tina Fey, and uh, they were going to go. It wasn't a question of forcing them to stay. You can't. So what did he do? He became, executive, he became the executive producer of their shows so that he capitalizes financially and reputationally in their ongoing success. And so what, really, uh, what, what that Wall Street Journal article is really about is saying, hey, wake up a little bit. You cannot force people to work for you. And if you're going to help them get better, and why wouldn't you want to do that, uh, expect some of them to say, I want, I want a greener canvas. I want to go somewhere new. And then you've got to start thinking about it a little bit differently. And as soon as you start to do that and start to manage that more effectively, you get two or three really important benefits. Number one, of course, is this idea of continuing this return on investment from a person that you've invested in for a number of years. You can continue to do work with uh, with them, whether it's uh, uh, whether they become clients of yours or, or customers of yours, or they they recommend people to work for you, or what what have you. There's all of those things happen. Second is you become a talent magnet, something we touched on earlier. Some of the best people are going to look for you because you now have that reputation. And third, and this is kind of the the Zen like uh, comment here: uh, as soon as you stop fixating on talent retention, 
and adopt the super boss approach to developing talent and to leadership, you actually will find that you will retain talent longer than you otherwise would because they're working for someone that absolutely, uh, they absolutely love to work for. They're learning so much. And so eventually they're going to go, but they're probably going to stay longer than they otherwise would have. And it's for all of those reasons that this is a very different take on how to think about leadership, how to think about talent retention. But I think it's exactly the way the world is going. And, and, and to me, it's the only logical approach given the situation. By the way, you know, John Stuart Mill had written about the happiness paradox, and that is the people who tried to pursue happiness never got it, but the mm-hmm. people interested in other people's happiness became happy. And I think in the shareholder value space, the executives who didn't pursue shareholder value short-term were the ones that delivered some of the greatest long-term shareholder value. So it makes complete sense almost in an odd way, in an ironic way, that not concentrating on talent retention not only gets you to retain talent longer, but if you'll support the talent in its exit, you'll attract a whole new type of talent because of your generosity and your vision. Talk about that. Well, this is what uh, this is what happened time and again. I mentioned earlier, you know, George Lucas and people knocking on his door in Skywalker Ranch. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard stories of of great people uh, seeking out some of the uh, some of these super bosses because they knew this is where you want this is where you want to go. And 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 the result is, when you think about. The, the, the challenge of finding great people. Every organization, every company's got to deal with this, right? Well, how do you find them? You have your outreach, you have the things that you do, and, and that's important. But imagine that the, the, the supply and the best of that supply, if you will, starts to come to you. Uh, it's a, I mean, that's a real game changer. That's worth a lot of money. It's worth a lot, that's worth, worth a lot for anyone. Yep. And, uh, and you see it, you know, in, in, in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of industries. You know, I just read a, um, uh, a research study on on, on law firms uh, and how law firms that have associates that move on to partner at a high, at a at a different um, at a different firm those the, fir- the the firm that they left from actually starts to attract higher quality talent yep. to start with because they're gaining the reputation the pathway to success that's right and by the way this also teaches firms resiliency it teaches them to not depend on the talent that's right in front of our face and that we can withstand, not only withstand people leaving us, but we can actually thrive. And I think that's what resiliency is really all about. It's not just uh, sticking with the status quo. If we're resilient organizations, if we're resilient families and a resilient nation, oh my goodness, what an attribute to have. Well, resilience, uh, in, in my mind, is one of the key attributes of great, uh, of great leadership. We all get knocked down, but who's ready to get back up and say, I'm ready for another round? I'll do it a little different this time, but I'm ready for another round. You, you have to admire people like that, and that's definitely something that's part of the super boss way of thinking. And by the way, folks, if you ever get a chance, there's a book by Nassim Taleb, and we've had him on before, and we'll have him on again. He wrote The Black Swan, and it was a terrific book. But his follow-up was a book called Infragility, and we've never talked to him about that book, but it talks about resilience and talks about small organizations sometimes being able to be more resilient than larger ones. We love talking about these subjects here on Our American Stories, and when we come back, we're just going to talk about leadership with Professor Finkelstein. Leadership in the family, leadership at your church, leadership at your civic organizations, leadership in your life. When we come back, this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Superbosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, and he happens to be the Professor of Strategy and Leadership at Dartmouth College. And Professor, I was just talking uh, briefly about Nassim Taleb's work and in the book Infragility and this idea of resilience. Uh, talk about that if you could, and then we're going to jump right into leadership itself. But uh, the, the small versus the big, and very often in life, we've found that these small companies are able to do things that much larger companies can't, and then pretty soon these small companies find themselves being big themselves. Talk about that and how those super bosses deal with going from being the small challengers to being the big guy on the block being challenged by smaller guys. Yeah, this this pattern you're describing is very common, of course. And, uh, you know, Schumpeter called it creative destruction. Big companies keep doing what they've always been doing. They find it difficult to adapt and adjust. And the smaller entrepreneurial companies come in and take over. And even if the big ones don't go out of business, they lose huge, uh, huge upside. You know, look at companies in Silicon Valley that weren't around 10 or 15 years ago that are just killing it, um, including, obviously, Google and Facebook and, and, and Amazon. And uh, the businesses they created, they, they all started small, but the businesses they created, uh, they were there for the taking by the giants in the tech or any other industry. They didn't, they didn't do it. And, and super bosses, of course, like anyone else, started, started small. But the thing about them is that they just never, they never give up. You know, you talk about resilience. They just never, they never give up. They, they always are looking for, and this is important, they're, they're always looking for a new challenge. They always want to move further. I call them, I call them sharks in a way because they're always moving on to something, something bigger and, and better. And, and, uh, and when they accomplish something, when they hit a target, they're excited. That's great. They'll celebrate. But then they're going on to, to a bigger target. And they teach, uh, they teach the people that work for them. Exactly the same type of mentality. And if you think about why so many larger organizations struggle, it's because they get set in their ways. Uh, they're, they're not able to, make the, the, to have that agility, that flexibility, that adaptability that is so, that is so central. And, um, and in fact, I think the whole, way, the whole way we think about how organizations change has got, is got to shift as well. Because most people look at change and this, like, talk to any Fortune 500 senior executive and they'll tell you the same thing. We need to develop a, we need to have a burning platform to convince people to change. We need a sense of urgency. That, that's kind of standard practice. And I listen to that and I say, well, that's, that, that's actually crazy. Why do you need to have your house on fire before you do something about you know, how, how the place is working? Uh, why not always be adaptable? Build a culture, and this is the super boss culture, build a culture that is all about adjustment, agility, creativity, change. And I think that's a, just a much more powerful uh, model to think about. Yeah, I think setting the house on fire every other year, uh, the, the boy or girl who cried wolf starts to set in, don't you think, Professor? Yeah, well, at some point you, you, lose, you lose your people. Um, and, and I just think it's not, a, it's not an effective method to think about change because it's based on an assumption, which is that people, people don't like to change. That's the dominant, dominant assumption among many, many people in business and a lot of academics. And maybe that's true, except you could do something about it by creating a, an entirely different work environment or social and social environment to help them think about the world very differently, that customized approach 
to dealing with each individual, spending the time to develop people, enhancing their, their leadership, inspiring them. All those things make them, put them at the edge of the seat, at their seats, so they're the ones that want to lead the, the, the change, and they're not comfortable kind of sitting on their laurels. That's not who they are. Yep. That's, a, that's the way you have to think. Well, about and also making change. change fun instead of scary, rewarding change, rewarding thinking differently and acting differently can provide and ultimately support behavior that, that uh, effectuates that outcome. Let's talk a little bit about uh, families now and church leaders and just people in civic life. You know, talking about what makes leaders you know, what goes into some strong leadership training? And first of all, why do you think we're not spending enough time on things like leadership and character? And by the way, I don't know how you separate those two things at a certain point in time, but why aren't we spending enough time in our K-12 and in colleges talking about leadership and character? Because if there are two things that can stick way past our education, it's how to lead and how to be the kind of person who's worthy of being followed. I think that we have a, a, a true crisis of, of leadership in, in many areas of, of the public arena, whether it's schools, uh, whether it's health care, um, um, and, 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 you know, parts of government as well. Uh, I think, uh, I think we, we don't spend enough time thinking about that. That's the, you brought up schools, so let's think about K-12 schools. There's, there are many wonderful, wonderful K-12 schools and great principals and, and superintendents. There's no doubt about that, but there's also a lot of variation. And um, one of the reasons is if you're the principal of a school, you are actually the CEO of that school. And we know from talking about and teaching and learning about leadership in all kinds of different environments, all kinds of different contexts, that there are certain things that could be useful and uh, that could help you become a more effective leader. And, and I think actually there's research that demonstrates that even kids' uh, test scores uh, the teacher is the single most important person, and what that teacher does, and the leadership of the of the institution itself is the next most important thing. Talk about Teach for America as a big revolution that's been going on. You know, young, smart young kids going into inner city schools to try to improve them and teach, and it's been having a very positive impact. The the most successful of those kids that go into schools for Teach for America are the ones that have a principal that supports them and is really their mentor. Again, a statement about about leadership. The sink or swim approach doesn't doesn't tend to work quite uh, quite as well. So uh, I do think there's a that there's an increasing recognition of the importance of leadership in education in K twelve. We could even say the university level, but that's my world. So let's stick to K twelve. Uh, and 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 I think there's a deeper understanding. It's starting, and and I and I say that because I've had you know, a lot of conversations with people about super bosses, and I've spoken to a lot of places and. Uh, more and more people from the educational sector have been reaching out to me. Uh, I've started to work with some on exactly these ideas. H- how do you really create, how do you instill a sense of, of great leadership using some of the super boss ideas uh, in, in schools? And I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, it's a long job. It's going to take a long time, but I'm very, hope- I'm very hopeful about it. That's good to hear. And what about teaching leadership, not just to the principals, but what about inside the schools themselves to young people? I mean, for my money, one of the great ways to teach anything is just to tell a story. I mean, sometimes stories, and I think the great power of stories is their imitative power. I remember getting behind Leanne and Sean Tui's book, The Blind Side. We thought at our network that we were just helping sell a book. And it turns out the Tuis had discovered that through communication with people who had been inspired by their story, that thousands of people had adopted a child because they had. They led on an issue they cared about. 
they told their story, and the next thing you know, other people were leading their lives, solving a human problem that, my goodness, these kids could have ended up in the foster system. And no disrespect to the foster system, but getting in a loving family and staying there permanently, a very different outcome. Talk about the, the storytelling power and the teaching power of some of these stories. That's a that's a wonderful uh, that's a wonderful story you just shared uh, that I didn't know. Um, so storytelling and leadership go go hand in hand because and teaching actually go, they they go hand in hand. I'm I'm a teacher among other things that I do for you know in, in a university. And how, how do you tell how do you teach a topic? Do you give them you know a list of the ten things you need to you need to know? I well I don't even have to show up in class. I can hand them the list, memorize the list, and move on. That's not going to, I mean, nothing gets retained. It's, uh, and it's always the case that when you tell a story, what you're doing is you're getting to the emotional side of people. And, you're, and now the brain is opening up in a little bit different way, and you start to put yourself into that story. I mean, how, what would I have done? How would I have dealt with that? Um, how does that fit into my own life? And you, you, you start to remember it. You start to make the story yourself, your, your, your own. And it's not a surprise because, you know, this idea of oral history is about storytelling. It's been around forever. As long as humans have been around, as far as I know, we've been telling, we've been telling stories to each other. So there's, there's, uh, there's no replacement for it. I think, um, I think the best teachers, that's what they do uh, today. Uh, I think that's true in K-12 and in universities. But one of the problems we may have, and I'm, you know, I'm going out on a limb because I'm not an expert on curriculum in K-12, but all these tests that people have to take, and we understand why test taking has some value, but those tests are not about telling stories. They're, not, they're about learning stuff. And in the modern age of Google, uh, I wonder how, much, uh, how many facts and figures we should be spending our time on learning, and maybe we should spend more time on learning how to learn, learning how to think, learning how to communicate, learning how to tell stories. That's that's kind of that's kind of how I think about this thing. Well, and I think you're that is a, a conversation we're starting to have here right on our show with uh, some really great education experts, and that is, you know, education of the 20th century was for the industrial era, era, and now we're looking at the information era, and it's a very different era, and we're going to have to th- rethink how we teach because the model we had was for a time and a place, and how you fix that, how you adjust that, I think that's the great challenge the great conversation of this century. And, Professor, we appreciate you joining us. Professor Sidney Finkelstein, author of Super Bosses: How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. He also happens to be a professor of strategy and leadership at Dartmouth College. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be on. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We love talking about leadership, and we will continue Go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. We've got some stories up there now and watch in the next year. We'll be doing one a week, and ultimately we want to develop a real catalog on some of America's finest leaders and what's behind them.
man who came to this country at the age of 14 as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race. And it's quite a life story. And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb. And, my goodness, a racing icon would be... Well, just selling them short and joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy um, and the region is uh, Istria and however now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War II, and uh, uh, a region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been. But uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito, and uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become uh, refugees, basically, uh, back in mainland Italy. And, uh, and my family chose that you know, the latter part, uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship. And uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here in fact in Nazareth where I live now and um, and this it was suggested that why don't you come here uh, we would uh, guarantee um, that you have a home you know and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas and that's the story and what did your dad do Mario there uh, in, in Italy what did he do for a living and what was it like for you as kids I mean you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe, to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp, almost, a, it sounds like a, not a prison camp, because it wasn't, but a refugee camp couldn't have been that, that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and, uh, but uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question, my dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh, land holdings from the family uh, on his uh, on his mother's side because he lost his uh, his parents at age two and four respectively 
and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side owned uh, about 2,000 acres of land, about 2,100 acres, and uh, seven tenants, and my dad was the administrator of that, of those holdings, and basically he was a farmer, and uh, so he had no other skills, you know, when we... Um, uh, when he moved on, and uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And uh, and when we were while we were on the camp, as you said, I mean, uh, conditions were very very basic. But uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and. Uh, never hungry you know he always took took care of the family uh that's a very proud man and that's something that i've always looked up to to him because of uh of that he had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way and he never quit mario it sounds like he never quit on you his family despite the the tougher circumstances so you're living in italy uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion. Uh, for Ferrari, and as you can imagine, as an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids, uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself. Uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what, had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives, and uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream uh, never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong, and... Uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States, two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought, and when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, that was impacted by political tumult in Europe, and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth, the life of Mario Andretti. When we come back, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
around the world asks anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti. You just heard from autosport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You, you come to a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth. Not far away is a little dirt track. From what I from what I understand, Mario, right. and you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were, anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well, first of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually um a car a car that was uh brand that was very successful in nascar racing and it was uh not popular that car here at this local level but uh but we chose that you know with the help of some other you know a couple other friends uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> yep. and uh and we followed that advice and um and we built that car, and and uh, but uh, we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh, here. Um, you know, he knew that we were following motor racing, and um, and we were all in. And as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something, and uh, then Alberto Scotti is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955, uh, on a way over on a ship, Conte Biancamano. Uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seen for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, "Oh, you kids are crazy. Don't even think about it." Type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not, in any way, understand how strong we uh, believed in it, and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car, and they didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, I took, we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19, and we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days, obviously there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that, and uh, we started racing at age 
19 without my dad knowing, and the only defense that we had on that, uh, or the buffer that we had there, was the uh, language barrier, you know, because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, things, because we were winning races, and, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I keep saying this, uh, which is a fact, and uh, it at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- uh, telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season at the very last race, an invitational race, that uh, Aldo uh, almost killed, you know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which, uh, you know, we had a... Um, Actually, uh, fracture skull and all of that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time, and uh, he was even given his last rites that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. And he almost felt vindicated. You know, see, I told you guys. You know, <laughs> type of thing. Yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we we spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story. And Aldo had said it. He was sure glad you had to tell him. You guys yeah, were racing. Know, it, uh, when Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while. After he opened his eyes and so forth, you know, it took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, I'm sure, you, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We got him back. <laughs> uh, so your, you, your career, your, your brother was racing, uh, but you, you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who are, who are key people in your life, Mario, who, who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you, your well, team? I mean, there, was, uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see... Uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. And uh, and my one of the first ones that actually helped was uh, my uh, now my wife, my wife's father uh, and, uh, and his partner. They, you know, I needed to buy a midget. A midget uh, car, a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter, and that's where a lot of the owners will scout drivers, you know, for the full size midgets for the regular season. And uh, and I was I bought a uh, a famous car, and I made a deal with uh, with Earl uh, Earl Hoke, who was uh, you know my that's uh, Hoke is my uh, my wife's maiden name, and. Uh, and they invested in that car, and that's what got me going. It was another plateau, a launching pad, if you will, because uh, I won some races. I was competitive, and uh, I got noticed, and I got a, a really good ride uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, Midget, which were running the ARDC Club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent Midget uh, series. Uh, with all the icons of major racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of major racing is of the era. And, uh, and that 
you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, uh, he, well, Rufus Gray, the individual, actually owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names, like Judd Larson, driving for him and, and USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. And he gave me a ride, and he became, you know, uh, sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars, uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrating into sprint cars like A.J. Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this, Parnelli Jones driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them, and all of a sudden I was started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get it right because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. In those days, it was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and, and um, and earn my my way, you know, uh, into a solid ride. So uh, again, it was just uh, everything was by chance. You know, there was no guarantees anywhere. You had uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world, but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity. And that's really the way it worked out for me. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity. And that's what so many greats and so many people who, quote, get lucky or, quote, have opportunity. They're just there. And you're there often enough and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series with Mario Andretti continues after these words from our sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti, and we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife, because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days, where she was, in some ways, helping support the entire project, and how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I tell you what, you, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and and uh, and, and in, in, indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because, uh, you know, the uh, uh, you know even as an individual, uh, she. I knew that she would take care of, like, you know, we got married, I got married young, and then the career was going, I had kids, and I didn't have a steady job. I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be, yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right. but, but it worked, and, and she worked, you know, like even, to give you an idea, when, uh, uh, when, 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 when I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three-quarter midget, that her dad had financed, she was working, and uh, she was pregnant, and uh, on her way to one of the races, uh, she's, she's just, like, sobbing a little bit, you know. I said, what's, what's the matter, Deanne? She said, I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you, is she, she was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. <laughs> I said, how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, oh, no, this and that. So <laughs> as you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week. You know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> so, and things like that. But uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously. You know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout. You know, and uh, uh, and and again, you know, she she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today. But uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she she had no choice. I guess uh, you know and. She knew that this was our path, and uh, even with the kids, uh, and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it, you know. But um, uh, she carried the burden, you know. The family makes sure everything is running smoothly, and and uh, and at the same time supporting me by just, you know, just just doing her thing, you know, being behind. And uh, uh, it was never like what, what I liked. It was the stability that she created because. Uh, uh, she always very in check with her emotions, you know, and um, and it was never like uh, you know ticker tape parade. If I brought home a trophy or uh, you know like a, a black stripe on her arm, if I didn't, you know, I was right. always, everything was even. You know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really uh, that was uh, what I needed. Yeah, lucky I, you, lucky you, Mario is all. And every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like an actor or a minor league ball player. But, my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are, you're a person who puts risk into the calculus, uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because, uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the 60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And, uh, and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made 
she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies and and then uh you know my best friend and uh, billy foster when he when he was killed and uh judd larson and on and on i mean we lost so many uh ronnie peterson i mean she was uh, obviously always the one that uh thinking you know when is is he going to come home you know this uh, uh after this race so uh, the spectrum of, of that was always there, and it was real. Uh, there was, we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and, um, and, and I'm sure that, that that was always, you know, anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never, you know, never dwell on that side, obviously, uh, so I was pretty serene, but, uh, but her, I could see that side of, of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty, um, you know, all the time, every week, um, it had to be, a, you know, tough moments. And, um, and, and again, you know, just, uh, 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 you could tell there were, you know, I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, because you know now watching you know my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth, uh, all of a sudden I have uh, you know different anxieties you know yep. that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself. Yep, I think most coaches know this when or, or, or most athletes when they're playing it's one thing, then they watch their kids play and it's like oh that's what my father was going through. Now yeah. I now there I get you go. it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades and we're, we're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things what they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it and that's what we do here on this series. You were obviously were named driver of the year in three different decades, remarkable driver of the quarter century and of course driver of the century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix. Um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big, big time race. And that's where my dream really began, uh, or solidified. And, uh, and here we go, you know, I win in that place. And then, uh, I also clinched the world championship there in Monza, you know, so, uh, that has, you know, personally that nothing comes close to that, uh, the others are obviously there are many races there are very every race has got its own uh shining star if you know what i mean it's just uh but uh when you look at the classics those are the ones that uh you're judged by like uh, winning indianapolis or or uh or winning daytona type of thing you know because uh again those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series uh so you know everybody would focus on that i mean there were there were others for me uh uh from a personal level however you know here i go i go fourth is uh uh winning 
over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland, 1986. <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one thousandths of a second. You know that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And and uh, when I look back, and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole, or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates. You know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had, always there with him. When we come back, some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. Mario was one of those drivers. He was one of the bars that that, uh, that people would compare themselves to. I mean, for sure, when I started driving, you know, if I could if I could keep up with Mario, or if I could keep up with my dad, I'm doing good. And if I beat them, then I'd get great. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife. But ultimately, this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, you know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession. Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's, uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or, uh, or any, any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, 
then there's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's uh, a lot that goes behind it. There's strategies that go behind it. Um, and, um, and again, uh, uh, I, I was always, I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive. But the driver is, as a driver, however, always had um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring right. us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to my who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team and and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And uh, I draw for some of the, you know, the, the icons in, in our sport over the years in different disciplines. And I was very, very, obviously, that's just what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results. You know, it wasn't always uphill for you, too. I mean, there were dry spells. And by the way, athletes experience this, too, Mario. How did you handle that? How did you cope? I mean, when things just aren't firing, so to speak, on all cylinders, how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, yeah. probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, there's, you, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And, uh, and that, I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your, uh, your will, you know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements, they're so important because, uh, again, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be always a bed of roses. When you're at the top, uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last and you fight like crazy, you know, to, uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You've got to start, keep searching, keep searching and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and that income, that is. If you had tried to pursue uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where, really, almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if uh, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened. Uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but it became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I, I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. Uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his... Uh, 
you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved, uh, uh, my uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was, uh, an aviator in the aviation. He was, a he had motorcycles. He had, you know, it was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just if we would have remained there, I probably, uh, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah. Now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mario, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know, you could always do something better, you mm-hmm. know, by looking at it now. Okay, I might have made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo, and I went with my heart, you know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend, uh, engineer there and so forth. And I thought Alfa Romeo was, was ready to, uh, to spring, you know, into the, uh, to the top, uh, in Formula One. And, and instead I, and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call yeah. it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could. You know, now that I have a chance to revisit, but overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, that the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, and so I, again, no regrets. That's great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment? The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions, and everything to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah, and and faith does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that that part of your life. Faith does, uh, and uh, again, uh, not just the fact that um, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle priest, I love that man more than anyone uh he was so such a modern thinker and everything even then uh, and uh, it was just that but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp Lorenzo Tamberlini who uh really uh somehow without forcing things uh, like uh, he instilled certain values you know that you maintain and keep and and always knowing that uh you can't do things alone you know you need some help whether it's you know it's it's an abstract from upstairs or something you know you have to invoke something believe in in something and i do uh and and many times i said you know i need some help here please you know and uh, <laughs> and 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 somehow it, it it works for you it always did and it always will and last but not least mario tell us about a hobby a pastime uh, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have. 
Well, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate that we have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight, uh, we play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic, and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition. And it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older if that's who you are and it's baked into your DNA. Mario, I, I so appreciate you uh, taking the time. And I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory... Uh, it was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in, in my three-quarter midget, yeah. Well, I, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to ouramericannetwork.org.